0: I usually don't like taking and, and try not to take um, decisions about church on my, on my own. It's not my church. Mostly, even when an idea started uh, with myself, consultations have taken place before we do anything. And, but in the days between um, Christmas and my going on holiday... Um, I did make one kind of executive decision there, and that was to um, delay the church magazine um, by a month. Um, Items should be, would ordinarily have been due on Tuesday, we put it back for a month. Now the reason um, for that is that um, I was just conscious after Christmas of just so many kind of variables, so many uncertainties around, and I was thinking, we're not going to be much clearer by the 10th of January which is when the material will be due in, but but maybe, just maybe, he said hopefully, um, a month further on, we, we might be a bit clearer about some of these variables. There are, of course, a number of them, but two two of the variables are factors that are, or indeed should be, well known to us by now. One, of course, is the COVID-19 pandemic and all its um, knock on effects and the new um, variations and so on and just at the end of two thousand and twenty one there was all kinds of changes happening very, very fast things were that were supposed to be on weren't on. Businesses were told they couldn't do this. They were desperate for some kind of clarity. Events were being um, closed and sh- cancelled at short notice such as the Hogmanay events one in Edinburgh and, and many others. The Premier League football was moved its winter break at almost zero notice. And, and people will have bought tickets for things. People will have arranged transport for things. Paid for hotel accommodation and suddenly events were cancelled and, and and where were where we? with all of that. Tomorrow we might find out if Djokovic will be eliminated from a Grand Slam tennis tournament because he missed two shots. (laughs) Think about it. And churches too have been um, caught up in that. Some cancelled their Christmas services and still have not met since in person. Some have made kind of adaptations. We did too. We met last week but said there wouldn't have been communion as we had planned to have. Others have continued as if nothing happened. We put, made prepared a whole batch of publicity for, for Christmas events and then couldn't use them, couldn't put them out. Because even though some of the events were happening, we just thought in the, in the climate we couldn't be saying to folks, come, 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 come when the government was saying, don't go out unless you absolutely have to. It's just been all very difficult. And the steps forward, because it's more allowed than, say, for example, this time last year, steps forward and then steps back have raised questions about if or when we will get back to normal. And that debate, like the one about should we open, can we open, what can we do, produces differences of opinion. For some, getting back to normal, to what we had before and what we got used to is ideal. Others don't see it that way. They see here's a chance to rethink what we do and why we do it, and going back to before is not an attractive thought. And this is where the second variable, I mentioned that there was two that we're well aware of, one, COVID-19. This is where the second one comes in. Because we have known for a long time that we have been living through declining numbers in the Kirk. And then we have known since the General Assembly last May that there's to be an approximately 40% decline in the charges and posts in the Church of Scotland, and also a serious reduction in the numbers of buildings that we have what we don't know is how that's supposed to happen yet. And while some presbyteries have produced consultation proposals, ours is dragging its heels, and we have not yet heard anything about what it's going to mean for us. But we suppose that any school bride um, will be going from nine charges down to six. So going back to normal is not going to be the case for many Or at least if it's going back to normal, it's going back to normal for a very short time if we're going to make those kind of readjustments and reductions. And is it really actually appealing to to think of going back to normal when normal has been in our lifetimes a story of serious and escalating decline in the church, one that's gone on since the 1950s? The issues around church not working well doesn't just affect us but it has a major impact a major effect on the gospel in today's Scotland it's people's eternal destinies that are the issue not our pastimes and even more significantly it's the glory and honour of Jesus that's at stake this is good news really good news Or is it only something that works when there's a favourable wind? If it's the latter, then he's not really much of a saviour, is he? Jesus, saviour of the world, but only in certain favourable circumstances, doesn't do him much honour, does it? So, at the beginning of 2022 with a COVID pandemic still very much around with these challenges and some might indeed say threats of church reorganisation hanging over us with the challenges of working out how we serve Jesus make him known in, in this winter season in which the church finds itself with all these changes and variables around what are we to do? Where do we go? What do we look to? It's in the light of all of this, perhaps a very dim light, but as a consequence of all this that I want to, as it were, in these coming weeks, indeed months, set up a conversation, an exploration, a a searching, a, a seeking about who we are and what we're called to be in times like this. I've often raised themes about what is a church and what the church is called to and try to stress that it's Jesus-centered rather than an institution or an organization. But I do think that with so many variables around us, so many threats and challenges going on just now, That it's urgent for us to rethink, and and perhaps rethink from very basics. What does it mean to be church? What does it mean to be Jesus followers? Where to start? Well, the church is, of course, to have three key relationships. We relate up that fellowship with God himself. Knowing God, as Jesus talked about, and we read a verse from John 17 at the beginning of the service. That is, we are to be living the Lord's way. As well as relating up to God, we to relate in that the church is to be a community, a people, a body of Christ, serving and working together in Jesus' name, loving the Lord's people. And we are to relate out to the community, to the world around us, sharing the Lord's message. So there is a three-sided engagement there with the Lord, with the body of Christ, and with the world. And that is essential and, and basic to what the church is. And no matter how good the other two legs, if there's one missing, it's not fit for purpose. These guys over here have have music stands in front of them. At the bottom of the music stand there are three legs. Take take one of the legs away and it's not gonna work. Won't stand. No matter how good the other two are, the third one missing means it's not fit for purpose. Vocalists might be able to hang on to it and sing from it, but bit difficult to hang on to it and then play the guitar at the same time, or a bit difficult to hold on to the music stand and, and hit the drums or play keyboards or saxophone or whatever. If it's not got its three legs, it's no use. And certainly if the church is not in fellowship with the living God, if it's not a people who are loving one another and building the body of Christ, if it's not a church who is seeking to share and serve the Lord in the world, if these three strands, if these three parts of church are not all there, then the church is not fit for purpose. So it's in that context that I want to, as it were, start this conversation. And what, this morning just to take what... There's going to have to be now a brief look at Psalm 51 as a lesson for us. For the first of these strands is relating up to God himself. That is something that we do on a personal level, but it's also something we are to do together as a people of God. Now, fellowship with God is a basic and indeed a striking claim of the gospel, there are indeed of course as you know many other religions in the world and many that talk about gods that do this or gods that do that but here's something here's something unique the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is saying that you you know God not just that you believe in him not just that you can follow him not just that he's going to intervene in life but you can know him. It's a striking and staggering claim. It was in the prayer, as I said, that Jesus made for his followers before he went to the cross, and it was, it was part of the, the message that they have. So John, who wrote that gospel uh, that I quoted from at the beginning of the service, in his first letter, talks about sharing the, the good news of Jesus, Jesus whom they have seen and touched, And he shares the message, he says, so that he can have fellowship with his readers. But also, we have fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. We know him. And so first issue for us is not how do we get more people into church, but really how do we get more of the life of God into the people of God that the fruit of the gospel might grow. Now Psalm 51 um, was written by David, not all the Psalms were written by David, Psalm 51 was, um, and it was written after his inglorious episode with Bathsheba. He'd seen her, he'd been attracted to her, she was married to somebody else, that didn't hold him back, he committed adultery, she got pregnant, Um, he tried to organize it so that her husband who was away fighting with the army came back and then people would say yeah nine months that's about when Uriah came back and but Uriah wouldn't sleep with his wife because he should have been um, with the army and he couldn't understand why he'd been brought back and so David then arranged to have Uriah killed. A very sordid episode and the point was made to him when the prophet Nathan visited him and spoke of a rich man who killed the one lamb of a poor peasant. And, and David was furious. Who would do such a thing? Um, and Nathan said, it was you. You did it. And that brought home to David what he'd done. And so Psalm 51, is, as it says at the top of the um, Psalm in the Bible, church Bibles, When the prophet Nathan came to him and David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And indeed we might say murdered Uriah. And so David pours out this psalm of confession that Leslie read. I want to notice just that, and and actually what it is, is... Also just a, an illustration of what it means to, to know God or to know, to know anyone in fact. First of all, there's a, a nearness and a correct connection, isn't there? There's a, a living connection here. Have mercy on me, O oh God. He's not, he's not going through some third party. He's dealing directly with the Lord. I can know about someone without dealing directly with them. I understand. Um, I think Kate Middleton is 40 today. Um, I know that about her I know her date of birth now um, but there's no contact there's no, there's no engagement I haven't sent her a birthday card and she didn't send me one um, and I'm not bothered by that I'm not offended by that because I don't know her there's no engagement but I know certain things about her and it's not just an issue of distance is it because I can have a relationship with someone who's miles away because of the many different communication options that there are these days. I can have that but not have a relationship with folks in the street that I might not see very often. And in Psalm 51 David prays and prayer, prayer supposes a connection. He's, he's not gone through some formal ritual here. He's, he's telling God what's on his heart, what's on his mind supposing there's a connection, believing that the words are going further than the ceiling. He doesn't hide behind what's the right thing to say, but he's open and honest. I know my transgressions, verse 3. You are right when you judge, verse 4. A living connection with the living God. Now, those of you who have um, mobile phones, you know, probably at the top of the screen, you'll see these wee bars that tell how strong the connection is, how strong the signal is. Suppose you were to draw one of these charts for your own connection with God. How many of these bars would be filled in? Is the connection weak? Is there no bars filled in, you know, and the frustration of no signal and or is the connection strong? I'm not asking, do you go to church? I'm not asking, do you believe in God? I'm not asking, do you think Jesus was a good guy? Personal fellowship, relationship, that's what the gospel offers. This is eternal life, said Jesus, in that verse we began the service. that they know you and know me. So there has to be a, ne- a nearness, but secondly, there does have to be a knowledge as well. Now, knowing someone is not the same as knowing about them, as I've just said, but we do know things about the people that we know. And in Psalm 51, David is not only aware that he has sinned, but he knows that God is holy, that verse 4 is against God that he sinned, that God is justified when he judges He also knows that God is a God who can sort him out here. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He knows what God wants. Verse 17, God's not wanting just the formal sacrifices. He's wanting David's heart to be changed and transformed. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. He knows what God is like. He knows that God is a God who forgives. Now if we we know someone well, think of somebody that you know quite well, you will know things about them as well. You'll know what they like and what they don't like. Some of the things that amuse them or annoy them, what they're interested in. It's not necessarily knowledge that you get from a book or from great intellectual research. It's knowledge that comes from personal dealing and personal engagement. And we need to know God like that. But in knowing others, there is certainly a vulnerability. In Psalm 51, David is wanting to know God better, but he's also opening himself up before God. And that means taking risks. He's not making excuses. He's, not actually, he's moved beyond the making excuses stage. And because of what Nathan has said to him, he realizes he's guilty. I know my transgressions. My sin is before me, Verse 3. He makes himself vulnerable. And there's something fearless about Psalm 51, isn't there? Just in the directness with which David confesses. I think it raises questions for us about how much of our our engagement with God, both in in our own devotional lives and His church worship, might not really be worship because of a paralysis of fear. Fear. And the framework matters more than the gospel realities. But where there's true engagement with God, this kind of brave openness that we read of in Psalm 51 comes to the fore. Do you have a God that's at arm's length? Or one that you can be open and honest with? And then... There is the interaction. So the, 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 in the psalm we see him <clears> that is connecting with God. We see that he knows who it is that he's speaking to. He's prepared to make himself vulnerable. And through all of that comes this to and fro of Interaction. He's not just longing that God's going to forgive him, but that God's going to transfer him. He wants a connection with God that makes a real difference. Verses 13 to 15 speaks something of the change that's going to be made in his life. Now it would be bizarre if a parent thought that they love their child by having loving thoughts about their child and that's all. True love requires interaction. It requires when a child is young cleaning up spills, helping with homework, pushing a swing, hearing a joke for the umpteenth time and pretending it's fresh, giving hugs and and reading stories and and so on. Is interaction and saying more than once, I love you. These things make a difference. And that's what David is doing here. He's he's being real with God because there is that interaction that he's looking for, that he will know he's being forgiven, and therefore that he will be able to join in the blessing and praising of God, verses 18 and 19. Our worship should make a difference to how we live. Now, I have said before, there's a world of a difference between reading a cookbook and having a good meal. What there should be, both in our devotions and when the church gathers together as the people of God, it should be more like having a meal. Where there is nearness and connection, where there is knowledge and vulnerability and interaction, we engage with the living God. And it's life giving, just as eating a meal is life giving. Without these connections, without these realities, there's simply a. It's an idea. Religion is like eating a few pages of the cookbook. But that's not nourishing. That's not life giving. Eternal life is knowing God, John 17, verse 3. So engaging with God is both personal and done with others, verses 18 and 19. Now, that's not to say anything about the style of what we do when we gather. Over 2,000 years, over many continents and cultures, patterns of worship differ. And that's as it should be. It's relating the faith to the real world in our particular place and time. And cultures differ and, and people differ. One person's joy and exuberance is another person's froth and so on. But what we must, and during that conversation I'm hoping to begin, we must have a look at what it means to engage with God, how we help one another better engage with God. That's what really matters more than our programs, more than having things in ways that we like them or at times that we like them. We say, how can we help one another to engage with the living God because that's eternal life the kind of serious engagement that comes when there is real nearness when there is knowledge and vulnerability and interaction with the living God And the questions and the challenges for us is how do we do that in these changing times? How do we do that um, with the restrictions of COVID around us? How do we do that with the changing scenario in which the Church of Scotland finds itself? But I stand here and say I, I, I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it wrestling with these things. I think it's worth it that we don't bury heads in the sand. I think it's worth it that we don't just simply imagine that we're in a different place from where we actually find ourselves. And I don't think it's worth it just for our sakes. Most of all, I I think it's worth it for God's sake. Let us pray.